A Mouthful of Air, a poetry podcast with Mark McGuinness. From Astrophil and Stella, Sonnet One, by Sir Philip Sidney. Loving in truth, and fain in verse my love to show, That she, dear she, might take some pleasure of my pain. Pleasure might cause her read, reading might make her know, Knowledge might pity win, and pity grace obtain. I sought fit words to paint the blackest face of woe. Studying inventions fine, her wits to entertain, oft turning others' leaves to see if thence would flow some fresh and fruitful showers upon my sunburned brain. But words came halting forth, wanting invention's stay, Invention, nature's child, fled stepdame studies blows, and others' feet still seemed but strangers in my way. Thus, great with child to speak, and helpless in my throes, biting my truant pen, beating myself for spite. Fool, said my muse to me, look in thy heart and write. This is a poem about falling in love and wondering how to make the first move and let that special person know how you feel about them and tying yourself in knots in the process. It was written by a 16th century nobleman, so at first hearing it probably comes across as a bit mannered and old-fashioned, but the basic experience is something I think we can all relate to. So, Philip Sidney was born into an aristocratic English family in 1554, and he achieved considerable fame as a poet, as a courtier, as a scholar, and as a soldier. Unfortunately for him, most of this acclaim came after his early death, aged just 31, at the Battle of Zutphen in the Netherlands. During his lifetime, in spite of being brought up with great expectation, a phrase from one of his sonnets, he experienced mixed fortunes at court, his poetry wasn't published, he was disappointed in love, and his social status was considerably higher than his bank balance. But after his death, he was idolised as the archetypal Renaissance man, a bit like James Dean or Marilyn Monroe or Sylvia Plath. Rightly or wrongly, talented people who die young are often mythologised in popular culture. 
And in Sidney's case, the mythographers had plenty to work with. Apart from his poetry, he wrote a very learned and eloquent defence of poetry that is still essential reading on the subject today. He also achieved some significant things as a courtier and diplomat and was evidently a skilled and courageous soldier. And there are not many poets who can honestly begin a sonnet by saying, having defeated all the other knights at the tournament, everyone had a different theory about why I'm so great at jousting. But Sidney could. Have a listen to this. Having this day my horse, my hand, my lance, guided so well that I obtained the prize, both by the judgment of the English eyes and of some scent from that sweet enemy, France. Horsemen, my skill, in horsemanship advance, town folks, my strength, and so on, with different people giving different theories about the origin of Sidney's superpower, until at the end of the poem he reveals that the true source of his prowess was the fact that Stella, his codename for his beloved, was watching in the crowd. It's all very dashing, isn't it? Not content with trouncing all his rivals in the lists for Stella's sake, Sidney also wrote for her the first major sonnet sequence in English, Astrophil and Stella. And today's poem is the very first sonnet in that sequence. His model for writing a sequence of love sonnets was the 14th century Italian poet Francesco Petrarca, known in England as Petrarch. And in writing Petrarchan love poetry in English, he was following in the footsteps of earlier Tudor poets, such as Henry Howard and Sir Thomas Wyatt, who we featured back in episode 14. Sidney's sequence was published in 1591, and there were a lot of sonnet sequences published after that in the 1590s, but he actually died five years earlier, so he was certainly ahead of the trend when he wrote it. These days, Astrophil and Stella is not the best-known sonnet sequence of its era. That is obviously Shakespeare's. Some people, probably not me, would argue that Sidney's is the better sequence, but it is certainly a much more typically Petrarchan sequence than Shakespeare's. So, Sidney firmly established the Petrarchan sonnet sequence as a thing in English poetry, with a set of conventions about romantic love, an idealised lady who is admired from a distance by a suffering male lover, who positions himself as an abject, smitten creature whose very life depends on a sign of favour or grace from his lady. By the time Shakespeare wrote his sonnets, he took these conventions and played with them, giving us his own ironic and subversive and somewhat bitter take on the genre. So, at the very least, reading Astrophil and Stella will help you to appreciate the game that Shakespeare is playing. But it's well worth reading Astrophil and Stella in its own right. It might sound a bit dry, but it's a surprisingly good read. 
Anyway, when Sidney's sequence was published after his death, it was given the title Astrophil and Stella. Stella, meaning star in Latin, was the name of the woman addressed by the speaker of the poems. And the speaker called himself Astrophil, based on the Greek for star lover. Phil is also a shortened version of Philip. So it's not a great leap for us to associate Astrophil with Philip Sidney. And it's pretty clear from the historical record, as well as clues in the poems themselves, that Stella bears some resemblance to Lady Penelope Devereux, who had been betrothed to Sidney when she was still a child. For some reason lost to history, the engagement was broken off and she married Robert Rich, the first Earl of Warwick, around about the time that Sidney was writing Astrophil and Stella. So in this context, it's clearly no coincidence that Astrophil laments losing his chance of winning Stella and also writes some pretty brutal attacks on somebody called Rich. Now, as I said last month in relation to Wilfred Owen, poetry scholars are always keen to remind us that we should beware of equating the speaker of the poem with the author of the poem, even when the situation is transparently autobiographical and when the poet is using the word I to speak in what sounds like a very heartfelt and direct manner. Because writing a poem is different to saying something in real life. It always introduces some kind of imaginative transformation, however subtle. And in the case of Astrophil and Stella, by creating these alter egos, Sidney is clearly signalling some kind of disguise or dramatisation. So it's not surprising that the scholars advise us to be particularly careful about reading this sequence as straightforward autobiography. And as you probably know by now, I personally don't like to go too far down the biographical rabbit hole when interpreting poems. But for our purposes, it does feel important to say that there seems to have been a real-life passion behind this poem and others in the sequence, which gives it an authentic emotional charge. It certainly doesn't feel as distant from the author's life as the characters in a typical play. And whether or not we are poets, one of the intoxicating effects of falling in love, which we all experience, is that we have a tendency to tell a story to ourselves about the person we're in love with and who they are to us and who we hope to be for them. And this becomes problematic, of course, if that story doesn't quite match up with the way the other person sees the situation. And that intoxicated state of mind is what I think we are presented with in this first sonnet of Astrophil and Stella. And I absolutely love the opening of the sonnet, where he lays out his predicament. Loving in truth, and fain in verse my love to show, that she, dear she, might take some pleasure of my pain. Pleasure might cause her read, reading might make her know, knowledge might pity win, and pity 
grace obtain. I sought fit words to paint the blackest face of woe. So it sounds like Astrophil is trying to think things through and get them straight in his mind to make some sense of the state he's in. And he starts off by saying, loving in truth, as if to say to himself, well, one thing I can be sure of is that I am truly in love. And then, feign in verse, my love, to show. I want to show my love by writing poetry in order that she, dear she, might take some pleasure of my pain. So he's thinking, if I write my poem, then I can turn my pain into her pleasure. And this apposition of pain and pleasure is very typical of the Petrarchan mode. It's a form of antithesis, a figure of speech where opposites are brought into play and create tension as they pull in different directions. As Sidney says in Sonnet 6 of Astrophil and Stella, this kind of love poetry was full of living deaths, dear wounds, fair storms and freezing fires. Which sounds ridiculous and logically impossible, but if you've ever been in love, then you will know it's a pretty accurate description of the delightful agony of the experience. Okay, so in the first two lines, Astrophil has established that he's in love and is writing about his love in order to transmute his suffering into his lady's pleasure. Which sounds pretty reasonable, doesn't it? But the next line is where things start to get out of hand. Pleasure might cause her read, reading might make her know. So he's gone from his pain to her pleasure. Now he's hoping that her pleasure in the poem will entice her to keep reading, and the more she reads, the more she will know about his condition. And he's starting to sound a bit feverish and desperate, isn't he? As if he's trying to convince himself that this will work. He's placing one conjecture after another and trying to imagine himself into a plausible future where his cunning plan comes to fruition. So he keeps going. Knowledge might pity win and pity grace obtain. (laughs) And this sounds a bit pathetic, doesn't it? Flopping about on the floor and hoping she's going to pity him. But it is a strategy that men have been known to employ even in modern times. And it is very much in the Petrarchan vein. The male lover was supposed to abase himself, to appeal to his beloved as if she were some higher power and hope that she will pity him enough to bestow her grace upon him. But before we get too excited, grace in a Petrarchan context would typically be not much more than a kindly glance or bearing him in mind. In Sonnet 40, for example, Astrophil asks Stella whether From the height of virtue's throne Thou canst vouchsafe the influence of a thought Upon a wretch that long thy grace hath sought. Okay, turning back to Sonnet 1. On the one hand, we can sense Astrophil, 
the speaker of the poem losing control, starting to lose his mind in love. But on the other hand, in good antithetical fashion, Sidney the poet is very much in control of his material, in the sparkling cleverness of his rhetoric. He is not only using antithesis, but also another figure of speech called climax, an ancient Greek word which, of course, means staircase or ladder. My old voice teacher, the late, great Kristin Linklater, gave a great description of this ladder in her book, Freeing Shakespeare's Voice. This is a device for building the intensity of a feeling. The ladder starts with a statement or an image or a feeling which is capped by one that outdoes the first, and then another and another, rising to the top climactic rung of the ladder. So, Sidney starts with his love. Then he puts the love into verse to show it to his lady, and go from his pain to her pleasure. Then on from pleasure to reading, from reading to knowing, from knowing to pitying, and from pitying to bestowing grace. And hopefully you can hear in my voice as I read it, the emotional intensity ratchets up from one image to another until we reach that climactic grace. Loving in truth, and fain in verse, my love to show, that she dear she, might take some pleasure of my pain. Pleasure might cause her read, reading might make her know, knowledge might pity win, and pity grace obtain. So, Sidney has built his rhetorical ladder up to heaven, and it sounds like the perfect plan, doesn't it? There's only one problem. It's all in his mind. He's trying to convince himself, but he's very far from convincing the reader that this is going to work, let alone his dear she. It's like that moment in the Looney Tunes cartoon when Wiley Coyote doesn't realise that he's run off the edge of the cliff and he keeps going until he looks down and realises there's nothing holding him up, whereupon gravity kicks in and he plummets to the ground. And sure enough, Astrophil comes down to earth with a bump. I sought fit words to paint the blackest face of woe. He's back in his study, all alone and full of woe, racking his brains for the words to describe his condition. Obviously, that phrase, the blackest face of woe, has unfortunate connotations for us these days, but for an Elizabethan poet like Sidney, there would have been a straightforward and unproblematic association between blackness and sadness. So, what can Astrophil do about his predicament? Well, it's pretty obvious that he is a highly educated man, with fancy rhetorical figures on the tip of his tongue, so naturally he turns to his library for inspiration. Studying inventions fine, her wits to entertain, oft turning others' leaves to see if thence would flow some fresh and fruitful showers upon my sunburned brain. He reads through other authors' books, 
presumably poetry, to see if he can pick up some ideas that will entertain the evidently sharp mind of Stella. And these days, this is frowned on, isn't it? Ransacking other people's books for ideas? But for Elizabethan writers, it was a pretty respectable modus operandi. Shakespeare famously liberated stories wholesale from all kinds of sources, rather than trouble himself with the effort to invent new ones. But unfortunately for Astrophil, this strategy doesn't work for him. By the time we get to My Sunburned Brain, we are at the end of the second quatrain, and he has spent the whole of these first eight lines in telling us about his quest for the right words to express his feeling. And as seasoned sonnet readers, we should expect a turn at this point, a shift in the argument or the action, and that's exactly what we get. But words came halting forth, wanting invention's stay. Invention, nature's child, fled stepdame studies blows, and others' feet still seemed but strangers in my way. So the words are halting, i.e. limping, hesitating, or faltering. They are wanting invention's stay, lacking imagination. And then we get this rather laboured personification of book-learning, stifling imagination. Invention, nature's child, being beaten like a naughty pupil by stepdame study and running away. And when he says, others' feet still seemed but strangers in my way, that's a poet's joke. The metaphor is again pretty laboured, saying that the feet, or maybe the footsteps of other authors, were like strangers blocking his path. But he's also making a pun on poetic feet, the standard unit of metrical analysis, suggesting that others' poems are hindering rather than helping him. And in case we're tempted to groan and roll our eyes at the pun, we should perhaps remember that not only Samuel Taylor Coleridge, but also W. H. Auden believed that good poets have a weakness for bad puns. So, as the sestet, the final six lines of the sonnet, progresses, the poetry feels like it's getting worse. Maybe we could offer Sidney the excuse that he was deliberately writing badly in order to show how bereft of invention Astrophil was. But I think he's too clever to need excuses like that. In any case, this downward spiral reaches its nadir in the next two lines. Thus, great with child to speak, and helpless in my throes, biting my truant pen, beating myself for spite. I'm sorry, but that image of the poet as a woman in labour, great with child and helpless in my throes, just feels awkward and absurd. Biting my truant pen, beating myself for spite, is better as it's a situation most writers can recognise. And the words truant and beating hark back to the schoolroom imagery of the pupil being beaten. But the metaphors are getting horribly jumbled up at this point. Which, again, may conceivably be deliberate as a way of conveying Astrophil's disordered state of mind. 
But either way, the final line comes as a glorious relief to us as readers as well as to Astrophil. Fool, said my muse to me, look in thy heart and write. This is delightful, isn't it? It redeems the poem, just as we might be starting to lose faith in it. And certainly, just as Astrophil was losing his bearings, it restores him to some kind of sanity and integrity. If you're really in love, your heart is a better guide than your head, trying to persuade yourself that you can persuade her to love you. And better than copying other people's poems. It feels like a very modern piece of creative writing advice. And what a terrific starting point for a sequence of love poems. Okay, one way that Sidney ratchets up the tension before that final relief is that he delays the resolution until the very last line. In the typical Petrarchan sonnet, there is a turn between lines 8 and 9 as the argument or the perspective shifts. And as Mimi Calvati pointed out in episode 3 of the podcast, the English or Shakespearean sonnet developed as a variation on this, where you have three quatrains, four-line segments, that ratchet up the intensity of the sonnet before the couplet offers some kind of resolution. But Sidney doesn't quite do it this way. We can see Astrophil's distress intensifying quatrain by quatrain, firstly starting his quest to find the right words to persuade her, secondly looking through other people's books for inspiration, and finally being great with child to speak and helpless in my throes in the third quatrain. And he does end with a rhyming couplet, Biting my truant pen, beating myself for spite. Fool, said my muse to me, look in thy heart and write. But that line about biting his pen and beating himself for spite is syntactically and thematically all of a piece with the stuckness and the self-flagellation of the third quatrain. It's only in the very last line that we get the breakthrough, which is all the more welcome for having been delayed. And there's another technique that Sidney uses to ratchet up the tension in this poem, because in one key way, this is an unusual sonnet. When you look at the opening pages of Astrophil and Stella, this one looks fatter than the ones that follow it. And when you heard me read it, you may have noticed that the lines are just a little bit longer than we're used to in a sonnet. And that's because it's written in iambic hexameter, rather than the pentameter, which is usual for sonnets in English. For example, here's the opening line of Sonnet 5 in Astrophil and Stella. It is most true that eyes are formed to serve. This is a perfect iambic pentameter with its familiar five beats. Titum, 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 titum. But if we contrast this with the opening line of sonnet one, we can hear an extra titum, giving it the six beats of the hexameter. Loving in truth 
and fain in verse my love to show. So, why does Sidney use hexameters for this sonnet? We can get at the answer by asking why English poets have mostly used iambic pentameter for sonnets. And not just for sonnets, but lots of other forms, including blank verse, which we have previously explored in a mini-series on this podcast. There have been several explanations for the popularity of iambic pentameter in English, including the claims that it lasts for the length of a breath when speaking or a unit of attention while thinking. But one of the most persuasive arguments has more to do with mathematics and symmetry. According to this view, one of the features of iambic pentameter that makes it sound so natural and also allows for so much expressive flexibility is that it is impossible to divide it exactly in two. Lines of poetry often contain a pause known as a caesura that divide them into smaller units. So, for example, if we listen again to the opening line of Sidney's Sonnet 5, it is most true that eyes are formed to serve. We can hear a little pause after it is most true, a phrase which has two iambic feet and therefore two stresses, and before that eyes are formed to serve, which has three feet and three beats. So, the line is divided unevenly. And whichever way you divide an iambic pentameter, you will never get two equal halves, which means that the metre can hold together, even with lots of variations. Now, it's also perfectly possible to divide an iambic hexameter into two uneven parts, which is what Sidney does in the first line of Sonnet 1. Loving in truth, and fain in verse my love to show. So, loving in truth has two beats. Then we get the caesura, followed by the four beats of, and fain in verse my love to show. But there is a tendency with longer lines, especially when they have an even number of feet, for the lines to break into two halves with a caesura in the middle. And this is what happens in the third line of Sonnet 1. Pleasure might cause her read, reading might make her know. Can you hear that? Even though I read it quite quickly, we experience a slight pause between Pleasure might cause her read and Reading might make her know. And both phrases are metrically identical. They both have three feet, an initial trochaic foot, which starts with a stress, followed by two iambic feet. And the syntax in these phrases is also deliberately symmetrical, with both halves effectively saying, something might make her something. So, what we can see here is one of the big problems with hexameters in English. When the lines keep breaking in half like this, they start to sound like trimeters, three-beat lines when spoken aloud, and we can lose the sense of a six-beat line. But with a pentameter, the line is long enough to express a fairly complex thought, but because it's asymmetrical, it's never in danger of breaking in two. 
Okay, so why didn't Sydney use a pentameter, which would have been a safer option in this respect? He was certainly clever enough to understand the problem and innovative enough to write in different meters. But instead of avoiding this pattern, he doubles down on it. Because after the first two lines, every single line in this sonnet has a medial caesura, a pause in the middle of the line. So that we get three beats, pause, then another three beats. Pleasure might cause her read, reading might make her know. But why did he do this? Because of antithesis. As we have seen, the tension between two opposites is integral to the argument of this poem, so it makes perfect sense for this tension to be embodied in the poem's form. Let's have a listen to lines 3 to 14 of the sonnet, with that pause in the middle of the line slightly lengthened to help us hear it. Pleasure might cause her read. Reading might make her know. Knowledge might pity win. And pity grace obtain. I sought fit words to paint the blackest face of woe. Studying inventions fine, her wits to entertain, oft turning others' leaves to see if thence would flow some fresh and fruitful showers upon my sunburned brain. But words came halting forth, wanting invention's stay. Invention, nature's child, Fled stepdame's studies blows, And others' feet still seemed But strangers in my way. Thus, great with child to speak, And helpless in my throes, Biting my truant pen, Beating myself for spite. Fool, said my muse to me, Look in thy heart and write. You hear that? Yes, I've exaggerated it for effect, but the effect is there, and I reckon it's there by design. Sydney has noticed this tendency of the hexameter to pull in two directions at once, and on some level he's realised it's perfectly suited to his purpose. So, what we are hearing in the rhythm of the poem, is astrophil being pulled in two directions at once. Which, as I say, really helps to ratchet up the tension as the poem progresses. Until in the final line, the tension is resolved with that beautifully simple advice from his muse. And it's no accident that, as well as having the pause in the middle... That final line is balanced out by a couple of smaller pauses. Firstly, after the word fool in Fool, said my muse to me. And then there's another pause just before the words and write. Look in thy heart and write. These extra pauses slow the line down so that we can weigh 
every syllable, and it puts a lot of emphasis on those final two words, and write. And those two words somehow make the whole business of writing seem so much simpler than we writers often make it. But, of course, the beautiful simplicity of the ending wouldn't be half as beautiful without the tortuous complexity that precedes it. So, like a true oxymoronic Petrarchan, Sidney is having his poetic cake and eating it. From Astrophil and Stella, Sonnet One, by Sir Philip Sidney. Loving in truth, and fain in verse my love to show, that she, dear she, might take some pleasure of my pain. Pleasure might cause her read, reading might make her know, knowledge might pity win, and pity grace obtain. I sought fit words to paint the blackest face of woe. Studying inventions fine, her wits to entertain, oft turning others' leaves to see if thence would flow some fresh and fruitful showers upon my sunburned brain. But words came halting forth, wanting invention's stay, Invention, nature's child, fled stepdame studies blows, and others' feet still seemed but strangers in my way. Thus, great with child to speak, and helpless in my throes, biting my truant pen, beating myself for spite. Fool, said my muse to me, look in thy heart and write. Sir Philip Sidney was an English poet, scholar, soldier and diplomat who was born in 1554 and died in 1586. As a nobleman, he received an excellent education, mastering several languages and immersing himself in literature. His works include Astrophil and Stella, the first major sonnet sequence in English, and a prose romance, The Countess of Pembroke's Arcadia. His passionate and brilliant defence of poesy is a landmark in the history of poetry criticism. He served as a courtier and a valiant soldier, fighting in the Netherlands, where he was killed at the age of 31. His reputation blossomed after his death as both a poet and a paragon of chivalry, and he remains an influential figure in the theory and practice of English poetry.
A Mouthful of Air is a poetry podcast hosted by Mark McGuinness. New episodes are released every other Tuesday. If you enjoy the show and you'd like to help me reach more poetry lovers, you can do this by telling a friend about it or by taking a few seconds to leave a rating or even a brief review on Apple Podcasts. If you would like a full transcript of every episode sent to you via email, including the poem text, you can sign up for this at amouthfulofair.fm slash subscribe. If you'd like to follow the show on social media, you can find all the links, as well as a full episode archive, at amouthfulofair.fm. The music and soundscapes for the show are created by Javier Whaler. Sound production is by Breaking Waves and visual identity by Irene Hoffman. A Mouthful of Air is produced by the 21st Century Creative with support from Arts Council England via a National Lottery Project grant. Thank you for listening. I'll be back soon with another poem.